Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hello, welcome to this Sandbox story, which is an interview with Dr. Anne Hoshay. She is one of optometry's most respected consultants in her third startup, iBridge Consulting Associates. After having been deeply involved in her practice career in driving her eye care practice to become one of the most innovative in the country, I and many others consider her one of the pioneers in advancing the leadership of women in optometry. Dr. Anne Hoshay, welcome to Sandbox Stories. Thank you, Scott. It's really an honor to be here, and I'm actually proud of your persistence in twisting my arm to get me to do this. Well, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be grateful for hearing your many stories. Uh, let's start with this, right out of the bat. Mm -hmm. I don't know many people who insert their whole self into their work the way you do. Um, that has to have come from your upbringing. Can you give us a little bit of insight about the people who brought you up to be who you are today? That's a, that's a great question and also a thoughtful in, insight. <clears throat> Pardon me. And I grew up on a farm in rural Minnesota, the typical Midwestern farm that you would envision in the 60s and 70s. And I'm the oldest of six children. The value in kind of who we are was related to our work ethic. But in addition to that, I saw that my parents, who both worked at a time, my mom is a registered nurse, and she worked outside the home at a time when not a lot of women did that. So that was a unique role model for me. And they both absolutely loved what they did. So those lines between work and the rest of your life, maybe the lack of balance existed, but it didn't necessarily look bad to me. It looked desirable. And I have said to a lot of people, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And I was so fortunate that I stumbled into eye care and I did what I loved. Yes, I worked hard. I threw my whole self into it, but it's because I value hard work, but also I, I was raised in an environment where it is not just the way you make an income. It's not, it's how you serve your community and it creates a culture for your family. And I guess I just fell into that naturally. To make sure everyone knows, we're at least by birth fellow Wisconsinites. Yes, I was born in La Crosse, Wisconsin, raised across the river in Minnesota. And during uh, the pandemic, relocated back here. I just wanted to be, uh, and I'm in Wisconsin again. So, but I will say, I came back kicking and screaming because I really loved the Carolinas. That community where I practiced was so incredibly good and supportive. But uh, this was more than a whim, and within six weeks, it's like my heart knew I was back home. What about, for example, what your mom did as a nurse mm -hmm. led you to be you know, your full self into what you do, or what was something they did in their community? I mean, I know at the farm, <laughs> their whole self in it. I'm just wondering if you go a little deeper with it, because yeah. you are unique. Uh, there are a lot of ODs who do everything with their whole self, but... I don't know, and I, I think of you as a little bit more of that. Well, that's uh, a flattering. Thank you for that. And uh, what I saw is, is my mom's work as a nurse 
extended beyond the clinic or the hospital where she worked. It was not uncommon for the phone to ring with or someone to show up at the door with a medical question. And uh, that was or for her to make a house call and that her her being a nurse was not only who she was as an employee, but it was who she was in her life. And we were so incredibly proud of her. In fact, during my early years in Rotary, one of the first things I did was make her a Paul Harris Fellow because she had got, had such an incredible career. She was an amazing mentor also. Lots of women became nurses because of her. And I wanted her to have some, some recognition on this earth while she was still here. So we um, made that happen. And you have too big of a family, I'm sure, to mention all their stories off the top of your heads. But is there any one that's of interest you want to share? Oh, I better be careful, but I am going to, uh, cause I am the oldest of six and you know how sibling rivalry can, I think I'll, re I'll reference my youngest brother, Matthew, who passed away seven years ago at the age of 43. He suffered a farming accident uh, in the year 2000 and was badly burned, lost an arm and went, had one child at the time, went on to have four more, but who he was in the community that he was not just really gifted. He was like a mechanical savant and that and contributed that to the farm, but he was also a fireman and losing an arm. He had to get sort of a special dispensation because he didn't want to give up being a fireman and he could at least run the pump truck. And when he died, five regional fire departments came with fire trucks and hooks and ladders and flags. And he was the guy you would call for anything related to fire trucks, fire departments, building a culture in that world, as well as being involved in tractor pulling and farming. And so if you talk about someone who throws themselves into their work and their community and, you know, with his passing, his wife's done a great job raising the rest of the kids, but he lived more in 43 years than most of us would live in a hundred years. And all of my siblings inspire me in one way or another, but him in particular. You said you stumbled into optometry. Ah, yes. I'd like to know about that. I had been accepted into a special program through the University of Minnesota, Duluth, whereby you would do family practice for two years. You do your classes and then you would transfer to the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. But I was putting myself through school. So I needed some money to go so I defer for a couple of years. And I was working and saving money so that I could go back to medical school because, you know, we have, you know, we could take loans out, but that's not maybe how I do things. And along the way, I was dating the son of an optometrist. And I started hanging out in the office and observing and I absolutely fell in love with what I saw. It was cradle to grave. It was the concept of family practice that I loved, but it was also specialty. And he became an incredible mentor, a demanding, but appropriately demanding mentor in my life. And so I took the OCAD or OAT or whatever it was and ended up going to school at the University of Houston College of Optometry and the other thing I loved about it is I saw a path for my ADD. 
that it, I was probably going to do something more than see patients day in and day out because my mentor, Marshall Peterson from West St. Paul, Minnesota, was involved in the academy and other and, and research and writing. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is what I want to be. I want to do more than just see patients day in and day out. I want that to be the foundation of what I do. But I see that this could be a springboard to doing more. And that's what it was. So it was a happy accident. And, and I think you make a good point, whether you have ADD or you just have a passion in optometry. One thing it does for us is gives us so many opportunities. Um, and we're going to talk about those in your career. I also want to hit on this personal note. Your husband today, Joe Davis, who, as an aside, is one of the very few people who's ever asked me and invited me to be his golf teammate on an occasion. Well, I hope you get to do that again, too. I hope so, too. Uh, you credit Joe with helping you quite a bit in this current path of your career. Just tell us about Joe. Yeah, I met Joe on a blind date, which he loves to say, guess what? I met an eye doctor on a blind date. We had um, <laughs> we had some mutual friends and they were particularly active in thinking that the two of us would make a great pair. And we went on the date reluctantly with the idea, let's just get this over with. And nine months later, we were married. So um, it was uh, almost a love at first sight story. And Joe had a brilliant career in wealth management. He was a, a specialist in uh, large retirement plans and just incredibly good at what he did. Um, the, that kind of guy is often best served by a wife who is going to be a little more homebound, have a more routine type schedule. But he figured out pretty early that that's not who I was. And he admired me for what I was doing, the reputation we had in the community with the practice. And he has supported me 1,000%. When I was traveling every week to Jacksonville to build the Vision Care Institute, go, be safe, have fun. Sometimes he'd come along. As I was traveling around the country to do lectures, he would say, I go along to carry her luggage and stir her drinks. He always had such a great attitude, didn't worry about if there was food left behind, um, if the laundry took a few more days to get done. we He was just an incredibly supportive partner. And without that, I, I would not have had the career that I had. I would have felt guilty a lot um, and probably would have given up on some things. Well, you're both really good golfers. Uh, you also, back in North Carolina, supported a, a young man on his journey to the PGA Tour, Harold Varner III. Yes. Yeah, Harold Werner III was in our carpool. He was one of my son's best friends. They were high school golfers together going all the way to state. And he, like I said, he was in our carpool and um, our whole community, our country club got behind him and have really enjoyed supporting him. And what he has brought to, back to the community and to the golf world is, is really unparalleled. And we continue to be very proud of him. Well, let's go back to your early days in clinical practice. Uh, you were the founding partner in an optometry ophthalmology group. Yes. What was the genesis of that concept and project? How did it get started? Sure. It actually started with um, a practice down in Texas when I was in school in Houston. Um, Ralph Berkeley's practice had optometry and ophthalmology and opticianry. It was the first vertically integrated practice that I had seen. And during my residency, I remember sitting down on the floor with a co-resident and putting out a piece of paper. And I said, this is the practice I want to build. 
when we're done with residency or whatever, I want to build this vertically integrated practice, the three O's. Off the mount, we want the best surgeons. They'll do only surgery. We'll do everything else. We'll have the best opticians. And so we said that's what we were going to do. And after teaching in Nova Southeastern, which I absolutely loved academia, um, as a quick sidebar, I was teaching ocular disease and directing a satellite clinic at Nova. But I felt I was there prematurely. I wanted to be in practice five years. I felt was at least the minimum. And I think that we should encourage uh, our educators to have some real world experience. Um, but anyway, so we went and bought a practice in North Carolina and we wanted to put this together, but we didn't want it to be an employed situation. So we actually got the legislation changed so that optometrists and ophthalmologists could be partners in North Carolina, as could audiologists and ENTs. So that was the first step in creating a true partnership where we owned the entire practice and the assets together and started Guest and I Associates. That's really interesting. Um, I give credit to some early Wisconsin leaders, somebody that went on to be an AOA president, uh, Dr. Dave Nelson, also, mm. you know, uh, AOA president someday, Vic Connors and others in our association, led by Dr. Chuck Brownlow at the time, to create a, a change in law where different or disparate healthcare or professional providers could be in part business partnership together. Yeah. Um, that wasn't allowed. In, in your state, it was specifically allowed then for optometry ophthalmology or for what was yes, it for? It was. it was just those two, ENT and audiology and optometry and ophthalmology. And it's maybe expanded or changed since then, but it was a, sort of a prerequisite for us yeah. that, you know, to quote an Alaskan governor, I'm a little mavericky, I guess, and I just didn't want to work for somebody. <laughs> but I think that the important lesson that I want to make sure we highlight with the highlighter to the audience is that these things we think today are not such a big deal, not that long ago, required somebody like you with a plan to have a business to actually modify law and to compel legislators to understand the impact that that would have on your community, right? And, you know, it really served me well in my serving my profession also, because I realized this is just a relationship business that if if I can meet with the people, tell our story, explain how this benefits us and the public can benefit the state, then those people can help you change laws. And so regardless of what came up in optometry after that, I had relationships with every senator, every representative, in some cases, the governor. And uh, I wasn't intimidated because I knew how it worked at that point. I was maybe too young to know better or to be afraid, but it's like, okay, that's how it works. I can do this and I can help others do this. And it's helped us with some things in North Carolina, some things we still have to work on with our scope. But I guess, like you said, it's all about relationships. Yeah. You ended up from that early practice building your own thing. Yeah, uh, it was focused on and served by women. Uh -huh. um, I think it's incredibly intriguing. Tell us how that came to be. Well, there was a, a change in my personal life, and uh, I just decided that this is this is I could just wallow in some sadness, or I can take heartbreak and hardship and do something with it. And I firmly believe in the Phoenix Rising from the Ashes model, and in some degrees. That's what that was. And 
I grew up in this profession when we, women were a minority. The things that we heard is, well, I don't want to hire them as an associate because they're going to want to take time off to have babies. They'll want to go to a school play. Well, listen, we live in an era now where there's paternity leave and dads and moms go to school plays. But I've thought if I think I'm just smart enough or crazy enough that I can create a model that I would have all women give them an ownership opportunity and nobody would have to work full time unless they really wanted to. And we would figure out the dovetailing for people who needed to be on leave for one reason or another. And it worked incredibly well. And I think my associates were very happy or the part and partner, most everybody became a partner and other people would call and say, how did you do it? How do I do this? And that, that was fantastic. And the other part of it was just professionally, um, Scott Phillippe, who's someone I so admire from North Carolina, was the president of our state society. And he called me up and he said, I want you to start the first women's support organization in our state. And I thought, oh, let's do it. He goes, but I need you to find a sponsor. So we went to Alcon, and it was a time when companies realized they needed to get behind women optometrists. And we had our first women's lunch with a keynote at our fall state meeting and standing room only. Nice gifts were given to the women. And then we wanted to try to create regional pods. So we started in the Charlotte area, Women, Wine, and Wisdom. We would get together for a wine tasting at, with the local female ODs. And that's, I think, where my, my reputation got started as someone who supports women. Because the next thing you know, I'm on an executive board for Women of Vision, the first national organization for women, and the advisory board for women in optometry, the Jobson publication. And what was so funny about that is there was a lot of male resistance to that publication. I don't know if you're aware of that, Scott. But it was like, well, there isn't one for men. Why should there be for one one for women? And the biggest difference is that was not a journal. It was a lifestyle magazine. And it was an, another opportunity. And you've got to thank Marjolyn Bierfeld, the editor of that publication, has done an amazing job. And she's evolved as technology evolved and the way people get information evolves. She has spearheaded that. And uh, they've even launched the Thea Awards through that, which is, um, you know, usually happens at the Academy to recognize women leaders. And again, it just, it was just one thing building on top of the other. And it is still imperative in my life to mentor women. If, if there's a woman who calls me and wants some sort of coaching, wisdom, support, she's got my full attention. And I've really tried to build my consulting career as I add ODs to my team. Not that I, in fact, I'm talking to a man about joining us, but I love creating opportunities for women who say to me, hey, I think I might want to be a consultant. Do you have, you know, uh, someplace for me to help out? So that's kind of how, how that chapter unfolded. Like you said, it was at a point where there was such a difference. And in today's schools and colleges, women are predominant. And uh, that must make you happy. Um, I think it also brings new opportunities for the profession to provide opportunities the way you did in your clinic. Your entire clinic was staffed 
by women, right? Yeah, we were 100% female. And I don't know, it's not that we wouldn't have hired a man. It's just, you got to have, you know, an app, you know, maybe our reputation was for people applying. Um, And I loved creating a culture that I thought was good for women. And you know, a little bit of this story. Um, Originally, when we opened, we were open till 530. My team came to me, they a lot of them had small children, said it'd be so much better if we could get out at five. Okay, we'll change the hours. We were not open on Friday afternoons. We were not open Saturdays, Sundays, no evenings. And I thought, you know what? If somebody wants to see us bad enough, they'll come during the hours we're open. And if not, they'll go somewhere else and that's okay. Because I can't be everything to everybody. And I know what it's like on holiday. If I'm cooking Thanksgiving dinner, I'm beat on Friday. And so we every holiday, we made sure we were closed the day after Christmas, day after Thanksgiving, the Monday after Easter, because I wanted the holiday to be a day of rest for the for our female employees as well. And we had on-site yoga. We had water, you know, spring water for everybody to drink, fresh fruit. The drug reps couldn't bring donuts in. We just tried to create not only a culture that was good, but also um, one that focused on healthy lifestyles. I want to just go back and one thing, um, when, when I think about women, I have got to acknowledge Linda Kasser. Oh, I get weeping. She was so incredibly inspiring in my life. Yeah. As a dean and an educator, I was working in optometry school um, in continuing education. And I got to pick Linda up from the airport one day and, and just a friendship was born. I got to contribute to chapters and books that she was the co-author and wherever she went in her career, she made time for me to um, challenge me and mentor me. And I wanted to be sure to mention that, that, that as that mentors beget mentors. So if somebody listening to this male or female is in that position that you have been mentored, then I would say, make sure you're returning that favor. Right. So this is very important that this idea that mentors don't have to be men to men, women to women or, or any other way, but that Linda has been involved in so many parts of the profession. Yeah. It goes back to what you talked about at the beginning. Um, I think of people also like um, uh, Dory Carlson. Oh, yeah. Right? Things that happened at AOA with her and Andrea Thaw and Barb Horn, right? That I can't mention them all. It, it just when, when you get motivated by somebody, it 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 opens a new channel in your life. Mm-hmm. So, well, let's talk a little bit about your practice. So your practice ends up being one of the first to go through private equity consolidation. This was early in that process. What was that like? You know, it was an incredible opportunity that came with um, a pain and some learning. And, uh, it was certainly not an opportunity I was looking for. In fact, the first LOI that letter of intent that we received, we abandoned. Both sides agreed that it was probably not going to be a good fit and walked away. My practice had been set up to be sold to um, one or more of the partners, and it became pretty clear that that wasn't probably going to go as planned. And that's okay. I have no hard feelings about that. And I was going through a lot with my family. My brother, who I mentioned earlier, was terminally ill. My husband had some numerous health issues, and I just felt I needed more flexibility in my life. And so went back to my eye doctor, and we generated a letter of intent and sold the practice. I knew some of the key players. Um, Maury Sheffer is who I bought my first practice from that created Gaston Eye, the optometry side of our practice. 
incredible clinician, great guy. And his son, David Sheffer, was involved in the investment side. And David has such incredible integrity that he, um, when things did not necessarily go the way that either of us had hoped, made it incredibly smooth and possible for me to transition out. And we had a unique practice. And I, at the time, my doctor, I believe, was planning on a type of practice different from their run-of-the-mill kind of retail practice, but a variety of things, that didn't happen. So they ended up with a practice that was delivering integrative medicine, and we were selling nutraceuticals. We had such an incredibly different kind of practice that to convert it to that private equity model was, you know, it wasn't just a transition. It was a flip it upside down on its head sort of thing. So it resulted in um, physician attrition, 100%, 100% staff attrition. And, you know, I think it's it's probably done okay. And in hindsight, I'll tell you, I still ask myself, did I do the right thing? And then my husband reminds me, were you able to be with your brother and his children? Were you able to be there for me? Were you able to? And all the things that happened in my life that I would not have had, I wouldn't have been able to be there. And so the universe gave me an opportunity that I desperately needed, but it also gave me a lot of lessons. Well, all good things um, have potential life cycles like that. I want to talk to you about when you had your practice, you built this, one of the first dry eye centers of excellence, and you had this concept of specialty unit delivery in an optometric practice. And now you deliver those insights to other ODs as a consultant. What does today's OD need to know about how those kind of specialty components in a practice can be a differentiator or maybe even a sustaining future for the practice? And maybe there's bad components to thinking about it. What does the the center of excellence of any type give us for opportunity and what do we need to be aware of? You know, there is good and bad. And I have been a a believer for a very long time, Scott, that up top there are different specialties and that we should refer OD to OD. One of my, my, my actual first hire at Summit Eye Associates was Dr. Sandy Farnham, who's brilliant in binocular vision, vision therapy, and so on. And I was so delighted to bring that to my practice because um, true to my mentor, that is something that easily, sometimes we're not even doing cover tests and phorias. And I'm not real happy that we are not vision experts as a profession. I could go on a whole tangent about that. So I wanted to make sure I had that resource available in our practice. Um, but did we were the only one in a city of over almost 100,000 that was doing you know, vision therapy and binocular vision, but did any other optometry refer to it? No, because we sold glasses too. So, and then I stumbled, I was an accidental dry eye specialist. I was doing clinical research for J&J on their first bifocal, disposable bifocal. And of course, those patients um, had dry eyes. And um, so we knew that some people with fish oil worked and some people didn't. Why? Well, then you go down that rabbit hole, you start learning about the omegas, DHA versus EPA and triglyceride versus lestolester and how labeling can affect, you know, what the patient is getting. And I just kept going deeper and deeper down that channel. And I thought, this is an unmet need. And it happens to be, you know, nine times more women than men, though that is shifting over time. And so I just set out to learn everything. And it opened the door to integrative medicine for me. 
because the connection to hormones is so strong. And we knew synthetic hormones, the Brigham Women's study that came out, we knew that synthetic hormones actually made things worse. So I did a postdoc fellowship in integrative medicine and the best programs in the country had never had an optometrist. So I applied and I made phone calls and I wrote letters and emails and I got accepted into um, uh, the, the first program as an optometrist and several other ODs have followed suit. And this is kind of before there was an Ocular Wellness and Nutrition Society. And I just wanted to learn everything I could. And during the pandemic, I became a certified health coach also because I didn't think I, I didn't think I'd be busy. So I thought I'd do something to learn. But as a result, patients started coming from around the community, from around the state, from around the country to get help with their ocular surface disease. And, you know, periodically we were building systems to make it more efficient and more effective and handouts. And when I transitioned from practice ownership to consulting, I did three things. One, I focused on doctors who wanted to transition their practice ownership. I wanted to take what I had learned in that and help other doctors. I call myself a seller's advocate, and we had such an incredible success rate. People at the table, win-win, really, you know, the deals went really well, clear expectations, things just went better. Secondly, I was doing operational consulting. And then thirdly, I decided also during the pandemic to help practices build the systems that are needed to fill the funnel, to do ocular surface disease consult, treatment guides, build patient compliance, and actually manage ocular surface disease, dry eye better than it ever had. Because you know what we've been doing, Scott? We reach in our drawer, grab the tear du jour, and you know, hope that the patient gets better. Well, if you want to lose a patient, that's a great way to take care of dry eye. Statistically, we know that patients will doctor hop three to four times before they get their ocular surface disease managed. So I have abandoned all other areas of consulting this year, and I am just spending my time helping doctors. Um, ideally, I like to help them build everything before they go buy expensive technology. But often what happens is they buy the technology and then they get the consulting. Or what's happened this week is I had two people reach me that they've got the technology still sitting in the corner. Will you? Will I help them? And it, absolutely. And so we have um, now added a marketing partner with Done For You Marketing out of Minneapolis because a lot of folks needed help with that. And I'm adding more and more ODs all the time to help who, who have the passion for this that I do. Well, let's leave it on the all positives, right? The negatives are sometimes you have to challenge yourself and so forth. But because I want to focus on this idea of you being a certified health coach and being involved in integrative medicine. I don't think most ODs that are listening really know what it means to have that kind of uh, breadth to thinking when delivering their optometric services. It's more than just integrating with the PCP of a diabetic patient. If you could just give us a little color as to what it means, because I know you're really passionate and proud of what oh, you're I really am. So thank you for giving me that segue. Um, integrative medicine is really the marriage of allopathic, what we think of as Western medicine, and also complementary medicine. And that might be nutritional supplements. It might be acupuncture, massage, chiropractic care. Anything that's not allopathic is complementary. And putting those together for the patient is integrative. That's the big umbrella. 
Within integrative, there's a specialty called functional, which looks at root cause. And for instance, we just sort of accept that people get glaucoma as they get older, right? Or that they might get hypertension. Functional medicine says why, what is going on? And it was real easy to bring this into ocular surface disease management is choosing a high, what's the right kind of omega supplement? What's the right dose? Knowing to have the patient eat, uh, take it with a fat soluble meal. We also know that 73% of patients with dry eyes are vitamin D deficient. What integrative medicine does is help you learn how to, you know, you need to test. And once you have the test result of vitamin D, what's the appropriate therapeutic dose? What's the difference between vitamin D2, the prescription form, and D3? We have to convert D2 to D3 for it to actually work in your body. We lose that ability as we get older. So we want to give patients D3, not D2. And then you start learning, well, God, if I have my vitamin D level at the 50 to 60 nanogram per milliliter level, I have a 50% protection from the flu. That's better than the flu shot. And then when we talk to glaucoma patients, if they, um, there are things we can do for them nutritionally, if they happen to be on a diabetic medicine that depletes them of B12, they're more likely to have glaucoma. So by, we created protocols for our diabetic patients, macular degen, glaucoma patients, that if they were interested, and that would be, would you like to know more about dietary lifestyle and supplements that could help with your disease management? So we would do that as well. Yeah, so, you know, I, just, I just saw some headline the other day, didn't read it deeply, like most ODs, uh, about alcohol consumption and its potential for worsening the path of glaucoma. And I think you would quickly say, well, that let's talk about the nutritional side of alcohol consumption, right? I mean, the, the, the knee bone's connected to the hip bone thing. Yeah, it's all intimately related. And what we find, um, I remember going to one of to uh, Kenyon Ranch for um, a program and education in Tucson, Arizona. And this is, this bowled me over, Scott, that if you have cancer, a cancer diagnosis should mean you never consume alcohol again. And that alcohol consumption at that time, what was recommended, like women one a day, men two a day, increase your risk of breast cancer by 25%. I had never thought about alcohol as a carcinogen. It's a sugar. And we know sugar drives cancer. So with alcohol consumption comes the depletion of like important v B vitamins. And the absence of those vitamins can drive um, a variety of conditions. I'm really glad for helping, uh, having you help us illuminate that topic. And I hope others will either reach out to you or, or pursue a path in that area if this is of interest to them, because I think it matters for our patients. I've got to put a plug in the leadership at the Ocular Wellness and Nutrition Society right now, two amazing female ODs who are very, very well educated. That this Jeff Anschel, a brilliant guy, really knows this area very, very well, started the organization, Stuart Richard. Some amazing people have kept that organization going, but I think it's at its strongest ever right now. And they're going to be offering a, a nutritional certification program. And the leaders there are bringing in the resources that um, other healthcare providers, physicians are using, the, the Institute for Functional Medicine and so on, 
So um, optometry in the realm of integrative medicine has an opportunity by becoming membership and becoming a member and doing that education to really helping patients not just treat the end organ disease, but to help the patient become well. Well said. I want to talk about one of the things that connected in our, our paths uh, as we both had worked for in the industry. I was fortunate enough to have you join and work alongside me on some things as an industry company for doctors instead of in our clinics on behalf of our patients. And we were guiding customers on whatever the improvement path might be. But you have done this not just with me as a partner for a little bit of time, but with TLC, Essilor, Elcon Global, uh, the Think About Your Eyes campaign, Nordic Naturals. Like I want to, oh, uh, you're on, it was Sinusure today. Um, this all dates back to the early 2000s when you helped our mutual pal, Dr. Howard Purcell, and the team at the J&J Vision Care Institute in Jacksonville set up its protocols. I want you to kind of hit on the the highlights of this journey of working on behalf of doctors uh, as opposed to working for patients. And it, it has been such an incredible opportunity. And again, I have to thank Howard Purcell. Howard and I were both faculty at Nova Southeastern at the same time. And he was not happy with me when I resigned. And then uh, shortly thereafter, he left and went to J&J. So got to give him a little bit of ribbing about that. And when we were doing the work on the multifocal contact lens, the first bifocal contact lens, not a great lens, but it was the first, you know, at least we have a disposable bifocal. Word got back to them about some of the systems and protocols that we were developing, the way we communicated with patients. So he had this concept because doctors were still not fitting torics very often. They surely were having struggles with multifocals. So he had this brainchild that there would be this vision care institute and there would be a technical component where doctors would learn to fit toric lenses and multifocals, but we would also have a communication piece. So there were four ODs pulled together and I got to partner with Dr. Steve Cohen, a doctor I had never met, who is one of the most brilliant communicators in this profession. You, I'm sure you know, Steve. And before there was this lovely institute we were flying doctors into Jacksonville, working in empty offices, hallways, wherever we could find the room to do the technical and communication. And it worked. Doctors were now fitting specialty lenses better and with more success. So fast forward to building the beautiful facility on the Jacksonville campus. And the four of us had the curriculum. And then we added doctors and over time, um, we sort of aged out and, and the next generation, but the plan was to open these institutes around the country. And I believe the first one was in Prague and uh, they had hoped to send me over to do that, but I was busy falling in love with Joe Davis and didn't want to leave the country. <laughs> and, but it, it, it's just launched from there, working there. Then Howard went to Essilor, asked me to join the um, Essler advisory panel, I said no for a couple of years. And I didn't, you know, I didn't even want an optical when I built my practice. It was an afterthought. And I give my husband credit because he said, well, you're going to use so compulsive about thorough, comprehensive refractions. Who are you going to trust to fill the glasses? Oh, and I was so mad. I got darn it, called the designer and said, I need an optical now. And I'll be honest, I didn't know much about ophthalmic lenses. 
I was an optical TA, so I knew about Abbey value and a little bit of stuff like that. And being on the ESO advisory board was one of the smartest things I ever did as an optometrist. I got to know the ins and outs of ophthalmic lenses. And I, and this whole concept of doctor-driven dispensing, oh my God, it was mind-blowing. And I had this flashback to my first year in practice in North Carolina. I had diagnosed my first glaucoma patient. Patient came back for their pressure check. I get to find out if the drops work, if I can know how to treat glaucoma. He came back. His pressure was at target. But do you know what he was happy about? His glasses. Best glasses I've ever had. And I thought, why does he keep talking about that? I just saved his sight. I diagnosed and treated his glaucoma. So I went into the office where uh, the senior doctor was, Henry Goldman, and I was bamboozled. Why is he so excited? He goes, you have now learned one of the most important lessons as an optometrist. People care the most about how you help them see. Everything else is superfluous. Not that it's not important, but that's what really matters. So fast forward to an opportunity. I felt like I was, I had got the insight in 1993, but it was like 2003 before I finally dived in and became an ophthalmic lens expert. And again, we kind of became known for the, I called it the, um, the visual connoisseur, the patients who really cared about how they saw were all coming to us by droves. They wanted all of this knowledge and, and detail that we could provide for them. You bring a good point. I think it's um, a profession that's at the crux of needing to really understand this. Or if not, they might also, we might also become a different type of practitioner in the future. And that is that we're in the quality of life business. Mm. Right? I mean, we want to change the way that patients' trajectory of disease impacts their overall wellness. But it's about sight. That's the patient's primary experience with us. It's also the reason, would you agree, that patients don't understand optometry very well because we haven't done a great job of busting through that door. We, we have been in so many ways our, our own worst enemy. Um, you know, I was in Texas at the birth of, of commercial optometry. Not that it's certainly bad. It, it's about access and, and, and that sort of thing. But I mean, my, uh, one of the examiners for my Texas board was Stanley Pearl. So um, I think that when all you know about something is price, then that's the thing you compare. And we as optometrists, I think, have missed out on the opportunities to help our patients know more so that they could compare more than, than price and give value. And I think that's why, for instance, ocular surface disease and in, in myopia management, if you are a minus seven, eight or nine and you have a myopic kid, you know the impact that that's had on your lifestyle, sports, swimming, whatever, exercise. And then if you now have an opportunity to help your child not become seriously myopic. That's about vision, but it's really about lifestyle. And I think the same is true with dry onocular surface disease. So seriously dry patients have said they'd give up two years of their life not to have to deal with that on a daily basis. So now instead of lid warm compresses and lid hygiene, we offer some root cause treatment. We can't cure yet, but we can get to the root cause so that their life is better. And I think that's important. But yeah, lifestyle, lifestyle, lifestyle. In fact, I call it I-style. You know, you brought up mentorship earlier. 
mm-hmm. talked about Dr. Kasser. Um, I had made a note to make sure to talk about it separately. So I'm going to come back to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I've grown personally and professionally because of my time with you, right? We have these things we do with each other. You had a story that you haven't told me about before that I don't know about becoming a fellow in the academy and somebody motivating you. Can you tell us that? Sure, sure. Well, let me just first say it's mutual that from the first time you and I met in Jacksonville oh, with the ACUVU Bifocal, if I'm not mistaken, that we kind of went that journey together and uh, your, so- your wonderful software company and who you are, you continue to inspire me. So it's a mutual admiration society here. But um, my mentor, who you heard me say, Marshall Peterson, said I was, when I graduated from University of Houston, he said, well, you know, you have to do a residency. I was getting ready to graduate. I go, what? I didn't think I, well, I didn't know you have to do a residency. Because I was originally going to join his practice. I thought, okay, fine. So I applied to the residencies across the country. And again, one of the, I'm now I'm a residency snob. I Best thing I've ever done in my optometric education under Bill Jones and Jeff um, Asseldown. I can't remember Jeff's last name, but it was great experience in the Albuquerque VA. And then um, I said, well, you, you're not, okay, fine. You can practice, but I really won't respect you until you become a fellow in the academy. It's like, oh, great. And I put it off and I put it off and I put it off. And finally, in 2007, it was the academy was in Orlando. I went and defended my cases and became a fellow in the academy. And I really felt like I had made it at that point. So who is the first person I called? Marshall Peterson. And he goes, congratulations. But he wasn't particularly happy. And I said, I said, you don't sound happy for me. Is it because it took so long? He goes, no, when are you going to start working on your diplomate status? It's like, seriously? <laughs> well, by then I would already been a diplomat in, in uh, integrative medicine. So I told him that was just going to have to count. It's but, just so powerful, the influence of, of us on each other. And I think that's the takeaway. It's, yeah. it's so easy to get walled off in your own garden, right? And, and we need to be challenged. Um, I, I'm sure that there's a long list of people who challenge you because you continue to grow and reinvent yourself as well. And um, I will always be looking for that in my life. I look for it in my friends. I look for it in a husband who's smarter than I am. Um, I look for it in my colleagues. Um, I suspect that will be the path I will pursue until I take my last dying breath. Yeah. Well, to talk of challenges, um, in the next five years, I think optometry's got a lot, right? Uh, AI influencing eye care, whether other health providers will provide some of the care we give. But one of the things you hit on earlier, you didn't go deep, is how education may change or may need to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those of us that are in practice forget about the importance of supporting our colleges. Yeah. You and I probably both do. And and I have to think that those that are at the helm today in academics are, are thinking ahead of it. Can you tell us what we should be thinking about in terms of these challenges in education going forward? You know, Scott, this is such an interesting topic because it is the root. It is where we lay the foundation for all of our other learning. And um, I've been in as an, as an educator at NOVA, not for a particularly long period of time. I don't know that I understand the current problems, but I, I can, the fact that we um, have 
is the cost of getting an optometric degree too high? You know, I don't know what is the cost versus the profit. I'd love to know the answer to that question. Coming out with two and three hundred thousand dollar debt is awfully it, it's, it can be overwhelming. And is it because I mean, I worked full time while I was going to school. I know that most people don't do that, but I'd like to better understand that. In fact, I'm meeting with Chris Lopez. I don't know if you know Chris from Wausau, who has just written, written the book, um, The Optometry Student's Guide to Financial Freedom. And I wanted to dig into that and learn more from him. So we're having dinner tonight. Um, I'm concerned about the pass rates. Is it based on admission, education, clinical experience? Um, I said, if I went to school and worked hard and did everything I was supposed to, and I didn't pass the national boards, I might sue my school. You know, that sounds provocative, but I want to know what's happening there. In North Carolina, um, we obviously are one of three states that still have a state exam, and it's very practical. When I was concerned about the, the folks coming to the state who didn't pass, I went to be an observer. And I thought, this isn't hard. Why are these people not passing? And then I uh, got invited to be an examiner after that, which was a great experience as well. So I'm concerned about what's happening in education, everything from who we're accepting to what's happening and, and, and their be ability to successfully practice after they've made that education. Then I also just think we have a bit of a paucity of leaders to be the deans and the provosts and the associate deans at the schools. I don't think we have maybe a rich pool of candidates there. And do we have people educating who have been in the trenches? Or are we going from academics to residency to, to teaching? And what do we who have practiced, what should we be doing to help education? And um, I'm involved, I something confidentially about um, a school now that, because I, I, again, obviously feel strongly about this, but rather than just complain about it and ask questions, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and try to figure it out. Because I think we need to expose students to more clinical experiences, more pra seasoned practitioners. And what that looks like, I don't know, but I think it will be an important part of helping them be successful. Well, your first challenge to everybody is become better aware of the issues that you've brought forth. Um, maybe investigate the answers to some of those questions. Don't just assume that that doesn't matter to you because it does, as a practitioner, matter to you in the future of the profession's you know, sort of light. And uh, I joined the Board of Trustees in my college, right? I I'm volunteering back my time, not to the AOA, the WA others. Hey. And I think that's another way. Now, not everybody wants to do that, but right. I guess I would like to join with you to implore our colleagues to say, these are things you, I think, should think of in a business manner. Yeah. You should bring your intellect and your experiences to the table if you can. Yeah. And I'm thrilled to see Maybe people. it's an externship. Maybe, maybe you're uh, an educator and you could find the bandwidth or the capacity to be an extern and give more clinical experiences. I, I just feel that we need to do more. Um, when I am doing the consulting, um, I think part of why um, what we offer, we do the coaching. And I have docs who don't have lysamine green in their practices. for, And I'm teaching them um, the standard of care for um, a slit lamp monocular surface disease exam. And that's, I don't mean that to be judgmental in any way. I am so grateful that I'm in an environment where I can one-on-one -on -one with a doctor, meet him or her where they are, teach them the skill set so that 
on if this if we're meeting on Wednesday, by the time they do their next slit lamp, they're doing it better. I mean, every one of us, without fear of retribution, wants to admit to the weaknesses we have and improve on them. And I think one of the challenges of being a practitioner is we know we don't get it in standard continuing education courses. Mm -hmm. And we aren't going to go back to school. And so I applaud you for doing those things. It helps people understand um, how to address the weakness straight up. And it's so fun. Um, when I, I work in the lower level of our house, and when I walk upstairs, my husband will say probably three out of five days, I am smiling and say, I just love what I do. I'm having so much fun. And I will do this as long as I'm having fun and I think I'm making a difference. He would have liked me to retire years ago, but he also wants me to be happy. So I will live with his golfing as long as he lives with my working. All right. I'm going to give you the last word in our, our Sandbox Stories episode today. I mean, you give ODs a ton of advice. Today's stories have proven that. Give our listeners a sense of how they can be reassured that they are in the right place to do well but how they have to challenge themselves to do better. We've just talked about clinical skill refinement. You talk about advisory, uh, maybe specialty services, but at the core, what's the message you want to give the audience? Always be patient first, patient-centric. That and in the decisions you make in your practice. But if you're in a position where you have employees, I really believe that it's ownership, leadership group, the employees, and then the patients, because they are the extension of what we do. We're only as good as the team around us. Um, and, and if you're not doing what you love, try to transition, figure out what it is. Go away, go, go to the woods, I say. Go book a hotel room or a resort somewhere all by yourself or with someone who you can think with and think through. Take Scott with you. You'd be fantastic at helping someone do this. And what do you love? What do you not love? What are the paths to change? Try to become one of those people who love what you do so that you're not working. That will bring, I go back to your words over and over again, joy and prosperity. That when we are surrounded by an incredible team who we love and respect and, in, and we're serving the patient and we're doing those things that give us joy, it will bring prosperity. So those are a lot of words, but... I think sometimes it just starts with being being quiet, being alone, changing whatever you can so that you can be true to your initial mission. Look back to your optometry school application. Why did you want to do this in the first place? Sometimes that's the place to start. Well, you talked in this Sandbox Stories episode about this being a relationship industry. Dr. Ann Hoshite, thank you for being a friend, a respected colleague and for all you've done for the profession, and of course, for sharing these incredible stories. Well, thank you, Scott. You um, you helped, you inspired my courage to do this, and thank you for the invitation, and I love that you are investing in telling these stories, and grateful that I've been around long enough that I've got a story to tell. What a pleasure it's been. What a pleasure it's been to hear them, and I hope that you, the audience, have enjoyed them. Thanks for attending. And until my next Sandbox story, be great at all you do.